0: You're listening to Dirty Feet, a podcast from No More Radio. Vous
1: écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. Hosted by... Animé par... Alison Burns.
0: J.D. Papillon.
1: Et Stéphanie Moré-Robert.
2: Stay tuned.
0: We're going to move you.
1: Our 53rd episode, we have Anne van den Broek uh, with us today. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, She'll be yeah. talking about uh, the piece that will be, along with her other works, of course, but a piece that will be presented at Uzensee uh, the 19th, 20th, and 21st of November. Uh, and the piece is called Cotelette. Thank you so much for being here.
3: <laughs> it's a pleasure.
1: Um, Can you maybe talk about uh, what brought you this far with dance? Where did you start? Maybe a little bit about your background, where you studied.
3: When I was uh, around 11 years old, I started dancing in amateur school, following classes. And quite fast, I took... All the disciplines, you know, like uh, African dance, electric boogie, it was called in (laughs) that time. Contemporary, it was one of the few contemporary classes in the amateur schools there. Anyway, a lot of tap dance, uh, classical ballet, uh, everything. And it was quite clear that it was actually the only place I really felt I could express myself with my body and not with words. (laughs) I learned by now a bit. And then it was actually around my 14, 15, it was clear, okay, I want to follow a professional education. And then I did just one audition to to enter in uh, Rotterdam's dance academy, it was called, now it's called Codarts in Rotterdam. I was taken there because of my improvisation and my contemporary. Yeah, and then I did the education and uh, around 20, 21 years old, I had a job as a dancer with uh, Christina de Châtel. She's a Hungarian woman based in uh, Amsterdam, who, uh, yeah, with a lot of minimal dance, really repetitive. Uh, and then it just continued on. I was there six, seven years, and then I went to Charleroi Dance in Charleroi, uh, Belgium, uh, with Frédéric Flamand, It was totally different. And there, the dancers really had to make all the material because he was more a uh, metteur en scène, not a choreographer. And I knew okay, I want to do that because I wanted to investigate more my own uh, style because I, I knew from the beginning I wanted to make my own choreographies. I just wanted to have the experience as a dancer and as a human being to grow older and I waited until I was 30 to take the step to say, okay, now I'm stopping working for other choreographers. Mm. I'm going to do my own uh, creations. So that's when I started and I started around my 30s um, with solos first. Mm-hmm. It was for me important to yeah go through the movement material myself. It was also very confronting because you cannot step out so I was going a little bit crazy uh, mm-hmm. with that because um, you know if you want to try to find transitions in the piece or things like that as a dancer it feels different sometimes as what you see from outside so I was going a little bit schizophrenic uh, uh, crazy <laughs> and then Two years after, I uh, created a, a duet with um, a friend of mine, Belgian, because I'm Belgian, eh? so she was from my city. It was also in my class in Rotterdam. And she came to live in Montreal. And I thought, okay, I would like to create uh, something on another body also, not only mine, but her constitution was totally different. Her physique uh, was totally different. She was very lyrical and linked more uh, legato and i'm kind of compact and with a lot of accents and very earthy and yeah with that i challenged myself to also to to really put my material on a totally different body and what was the consequence about that how is it looking and from that moment on i decided to to make group pieces and to not dance anymore myself because i really it, it fascinated me to work with all these different body types but they really have to learn my way of moving. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so it was uh, like that, and then all the pieces came. This latest piece, Côtelette, uh, you have some brackets in that title there. It's C-O, yeah. opening bracket, T-E, close, L-E-T-T-E. Can yes. you explain that? Uh, I, I feel like titles are a window into the work. So what, what does that mean for you, Is that, that t- punctuation? Yeah, it's... Um, well,
3: côtelette I created in 2007, eh, so it's not my latest piece. Uh, but the brackets in it, it's like, a, I'm sure here it's the same. Uh, if you have the brackets not, if it's côtelette, it's a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. And then the brackets are there. If you take it out, you have Colette, what is a female name, and also the name of the feminist writer of um, yeah, Cotelet, uh, Colette. Yeah this this there's always something double in in my work and in the titles and uh in everything actually so
2: is this concept a starting point that you then create with that in mind or is it something that comes out of the work when you start physically and then No the no concept? it's...
3: I before I I call it a There is a title And then I of course I put between brackets uh, Working title Mm -hmm. But most of the time 99% It stays the same And it's already Because you have to Of course also Ask for subsidy And make a file And all these things And It's like One and a half year up front In Belgium and in Holland uh, That you do that And And it's yeah it stays quite the same also the theme the working method i'm going to use more things are really staying the same as when i intentionally wrote it down okay of course there's an openness because you you start creating you're in the studio you're with the dancers and a lot of new things come up eh? but basically it's all there's also the title and for me, it was Colette eh, a woman, and then Colette, a piece of meat, but to have the 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 name and the personality of the woman, and at the same time the just the body the piece of meat and it can be yeah, towards society and sexually, but it can also be just the fact of getting older and dying, and you 're just a dead body i mean there's a lot uh, in it
0: and is this approach to to the body as as a matter as something that you 're going to use as a choreographer? Uh, much in the same way in visual arts that painters would use paint. Is it something that comes back often, the body as pure matter?
3: Yes, yeah. I'm going to skip for now the philosophical part, but if, if I just uh, look at the working method that I developed autodidactically along the years, I mean, my work, it starts from an emotional intention, actually, And you have the basic emotions, the basic emotional states. Anger, uh, fear, lust and desire, uh, sorrow, pain, joy. And so it's an emotional thing. I go into the studio with a video camera on my own. I have uh, some improvisational tasks, very limited. I start improvising, improvising, improvising. But then... After that, I step out and I'm looking at the video to get with my dancers as to a human body that has no emotions. Well, the move material starts from the emotions. And so it's also very double. So in that, that part of the process, it's literally what is she doing? Her finger is going there. Her eyes are going there. It's, it's like that. It's really pure looking from the outside then. And then it's sometimes really copying what i'm doing at certain moments and at the same time it it alternates all the time at the same time they have to go through this emotional state themselves to get to material yeah it's doubled all the time that's what i mean everything is double
0: and when it comes to dancers do you feel that when they reproduce what they see on stage when they put it inside of their bodies do they do they usually find that emotional genesis of the movement uh just by going through the movement, do do they feel it emerge out of the movement, or do you have to discuss with them the emotional aspects that led to the movement in the first place?
3: Yeah, before that, they look at a video anyway, which is also always. Uh, now I'm used to it more, but for me it's a very private thing. That's why I want to do it alone in the studio, like also for Cotalet If you saw me improvising, <laughs> those tapes are uh, <laughs> sealed and secret. <laughs> but. Um, of course, I had a talk with them about concept, uh, how I started improvisations, from where it starts. So I give them already the basic information about the emotional intentions. So it's not totally distant that they're looking at it. And that's what I'm saying. It's a it's a double yeah, working, getting to one point. So they know in a way. And then, yeah, it's a very full. I can give a lot of examples, but... I mean, the dancers that I work with now, they are really working a long time with me already. So, I mean, they—they, they, I have to do, uh, and they know what I mean. And they found this balance of this emotional state and at the same time executing a rhythmical form with that emotional state. So they are in an emotional state, but then there's so much information coming of counts and rhythm and millimeter spacing and so many details. Now they, they can really have this homogen, this Yeah, everything at the same time. Well, before I had to uh, go into the discussion about, yeah, but the emotional state, you're faking it. Let's go back to basics. Let's just stand. Imagine or autobiographically what you experienced or from an image, because certain people can work more with images for their own fantasy as with their own experience. And then you go back to basics. Okay, lust. Imagine your body is in lust How is a human body, female body uh, Reacting in lust And then you still have different females But in the end we have the basic Things where lust is felt So then I go back To get it simple Because the easiest thing is that They start reproducing an image Of you know like Very theatrical oh, This is lust but I see immediately It's not coming from your core Your your acting the last, I mean, theatrically acting. So, yeah, we have a lot of those discussions and talks and research about sometimes one hand that has to move and how is it moving, and it's, oh. And then it goes, yeah, it can be hours on one little thing and other days uh, there's I'm going so fast with so much information. It's also, again, two parts uh, that I'm switching on.
1: So Cotelet is actually, um, as you mentioned, a piece that was created in 2007 are you still using the same dancers in that work or have you uh, remounted it has it has it uh, evolved or changed since and and to add to that I believe it was also a film um, in, in after
3: the film was made after, after. Yeah, yeah, so yeah.
1: after 2007 yes it
3: was in 2010 or 11 my brain uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: and yes yeah, so I'm interested um, on the the people who've been involved in that project and how's that Changed going from stage to film and then back to the stage.
3: The people are dancing—it's um, originally it's uh, Cecilia Moisio, she's the blonde Finnish uh, dancer. Uh, who did Ruiz onandi, She's Spanish. And Theodosia Stati, she was Greek. The role of Theodosia has been changed now for the third time. The other two are still sick they're doing this for six years. It's like they had hundred twenty shows with it and a lot of rehearsals they are cotelet, it's like yeah. uh but this role and it's a bit uh, strange also because um, I I mean the, the the part that Theodosia was doing it's um, a bit an ambiguous part and I also was looking for a body type actually more a weaker female body type not as strong as the others and it was very typical that it's that role that has to be changed through another person um Mm. it 's yeah, and then uh, it was Frau Camarian uh, that I still knew as an amateur when she was uh, small who took uh, the role over and normally she was also going to be here, but she was in another project at the same time, so now it 's Francesca Monti taking over the role who is in my latest work also voilà. and for this it 's all the same
1: okay.
3: and then going to the movie mm-hmm. uh yeah it 's totally different because if you do the the, the full length show live in an audience I mean, the, the live performance you have this immediate contact feeling with the public of course when you are performing for a camera it was yeah it's totally different so it was very good that they did so many shows before the camera and Mike Figgis came there because you have to work in cuts with cuts while it's very important that from the beginning to the end you take every emotion of the different states with you to have a consequence for the next one.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: And uh, for that also during filming, I said to Mike, I said, we have to do, because it's three big parts in Kotelet. For me, you have a kind of intro part where I literally very dry, um, um, given information about different invisible islands and every island has another emotional state and the dancers really walk like a robot to that island, get into the state go in a little crescendo and then cut it off and go to the next island. Uh. So it's the intro of the whole base of, of the emotional states the middle part is the pink part it's the euphoric part, it's the yeah, losing yourself or wanting to lose yourself part and then the last part is actually a mix of everything it's more the desperate part, mm-hmm. it's like three big parts and with filming we did those parts because it was impossible to make do it in little cuts, in little parts, because you just see on the body, I mean sometimes the body is also red or because of slapping or from, from the knees on the floor the whole time Or and then if you do it separately, they are looking fresh with no blue knees or no blue, mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it's uh, it was for them hard in a way, of course. We we shot it in five days, and uh, yeah, it's to to go again through all this emotion and again and again and yeah. again. Uh, but it was yeah a very important experience for all of us, I think. And but I think they were very happy to to also uh, be back on stage with it and just mm-hmm. go from beginning to end and feel. If that an audience connection is with, with them the audience. or not. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And and as a choreographer, did you was there something about being involved in the, the filmmaking uh that you were able to go get details that you yeah. feel you can't get on stage? Yeah, and, you
3: see much And how co- was I mean, that
1: kind of learning yeah. process?
3: Normally in all my work, the how the focus is used, it's choreographed also. It's part of an emotion or mm-hmm. what I want to see or what triggers me or but still you have the front
2: mm-hmm.
3: eh? in, an, uh, in a live performance. With the film, my figures was going around, so it was 360 degrees. So, even although you're aware of how you use your focus from the moment you turn around, you're aware that normally you're projecting something with your back to the audience. But now, they were aware of that, and the camera was suddenly there. It's, it's another feeling. So, that was something I, I worked on a bit more with them but it had to go very fast uh, in between the the shooting and And for the rest of course all these details and I also had my uh, imagination like in the last part the machine rubbing we call it that the camera would be from low middle really not creative just low middle because then the women become big and you see them going up and down all the time with their torso and uh, Mike followed that and uh, yeah, I mean, there were things I was inspired on the moment itself, and I saw also the, the the rushes after every day, and of course, what is typical, all all the details of the close-ups. It's uh, some close. It's amazing. So that was for me, and it's also something I want to do more with film. I'm busy with it in my next project. There's going to be a live camera on stage in the dark with a little lamp
1: and that's for a red piece no the that's red piece. then
3: the black piece
1: oh <laughs> oh well i <laughs> haven't, even next haven't even heard of the black piece no
3: <laughs> because it's not existing <laughs> yet <laughs> in real <laughs> in my head <laughs> yes but <laughs> oh
1: wonderful
3: <laughs> that's the red piece was the last the last one is yes.
1: and and it's the one that you're um touring with
3: yes yes
1: after montreal right yeah and maybe can you talk a bit about the red piece? I, um, I guess we, we won't have the pleasure of seeing it yet here in Montreal, but um, I am really interested in the, whether the process is, is something that's can carrying on in your work of this overlaying and working with uh, yeah, it emotions and yeah. uh, desires. There's a lot of... Uh, yeah. I have to talk then a bit about
3: those last 12 years and the place of Cotulet in it, and. Like I said, it's autodidactically that I went through things. And along mm-hmm. the way, when I was reading more also about Stanislavski Method and Grotowski Method and things like that, I was like, oh, but I'm doing a bit of this and I'm doing a bit of that. What is this? What is this? And every piece, actually, like, yeah, the is about lust and desire, but the piece before, it was a group female piece, was about an emotional shock, and uh, uh, physical or emotional, so violence and abuse or an emotional shock you get, and how you get into a dialogue and escaping from it and confronting with it. That was the first group. Is then I went to to the theme and the emotion research of lust, desire, and the appearance of the female body. Then I went uh, uh, especially to non-comprehensible human behavior, <laughs> <laughs> uh, together with mental isolation and the uh, the pain that a loved person feels when you have no contact with somebody. And uh, it was also uh, about the, the, my brother died then. Um, so that piece came in between. Yeah. I didn't plan it. I just had to do it. That was uh, Isolament, that piece was called. Um, and that was really about... The the, the male role was uh, the mental isolation and how you get somebody in a physical behavior that you think, what is he doing? He cannot follow. And then the female part was the, the, the paying part and the also the ad- ad- admiring part that, and, and a lot of love, but at the same time pain of uh, losing that person mentally and then later physically. Then I went to the emotion of um, the communication like uh, uh, that you are not able to communicate even if you can is your message coming across <laughs> and um being trapped in a body you hate and it was also about gender and that piece was called we solo men it's a groupies with a ceiling full of microphones and there i for the first time also used the live sound like uh, in the microphones some microphones if the dancer said some words because before that i on stage i never worked with text or words in producing some material or creating, yes, but then when we went on stage, I took all the words out. So that the, the mimic of communicating was still there. And with Solomon, it was then about that uh, communication and also a bit uh, the image like he had uh, six gorgeous men with two women as a man, but very styled uh, in the piece. And then by the end, uh, 2011, I thought, okay, I actually went through all these different emotional states. I've done them. I would like now to take all the climaxes of just the movement material climaxes, the crescendo parts of the crescendo of a certain emotional state put in a rhythmical form. I want to take them from all the pieces I created. I want to make them simpler and put them in slow motion. And that was Q61. A piece and After that, there was a kind of break for me. I was like, okay, uh, so what now? Plus, along the years, my work got more introvert, uh, like also with speed. I didn't want always that it was like fast and compact. I started working with slow motion, trying to look for something. Yeah, again, different layers of perception. And I thought, okay... Then 2012 was a year I did like four or five guest choreographies for other uh, mm-hmm. companies and dancers. And then I thought, okay, the red piece is gonna be like a new start, but I'm not gonna throw away everything I found the researched. I'm mm-hmm. gonna still do the same. It's just I want to use more the elements and put it. Now I'm more busy with, um, yeah, more uh, how you look at things before also. But I'm putting more combinations together. Like more in an absurd way or uh, that I'm using with perception, mean, what is reality? That you have to find more your own way of looking at things, also as an audience. And that was the red piece. And the base of the red piece was passion. And passion is actually the base of all those emotions. Mm-hmm. So actually I went deeper than before. Yeah, I don't know what to say more about
1: no, that. No, no, that's, that's great. Uh,
3: um. Plus also, because I had new dancers, it's also an item. Some of them were new, The most of them were new, and because some stopped dancing, some uh, are focusing on their own work, yeah, some needed a break, and I thought, uh, because I work, yeah, very close with them, and I thought, oh, all these new dancers and this piece, and I missed being on stage, and I'm not a dancer anymore, I mean... But I'm also on stage in the Red Piece, but giving actually, like, the creator, also with passion. eh? The creator, so I start something, simple things. eh? It's a foot rhythm, and they take it over. Then I walk, and then you see a certain thing. It's also with ropes and Japanese bondage. There's a lot in it. And you just see that I start something... In my head, and in my, and it continues into the dancers. But it also, by the end, starts leading its own life because mm-hmm. with passion, it's let's say a very positive thing because you have an action, you have a drive to do something. But how far do you go in it, and how far is your belief that you're going for your passion, and where does it become extremism or obsession, or uh, you know, the limit mm-hmm. is very thin, and the line is very thin. So it's about that. And also controlling, because for the moment you are passionate, there is a big control in it. When are you losing the control? I mean, having too much control and losing it... Also a lot And then hate Love Also relationship And uh, Because it's taboo To say You're fighting with somebody And and I hate you And You know We always want this beauty But it's not real I think life exists Out of two sides And you have to try To find a balance In that Otherwise you're Faking something Mm
4: -hmm.
0: Before the interview You were telling me That when it comes to movement And musicality You're very rigorous And very precise In what you're making Your dancers do but you're exploring a lot of themes where emotions, well, very powerful yeah. emotions, which take over the body and yeah. almost leaves it uh, incapable of mm-hmm. being rigorous. How how is that um, worked with the, the dancers, like exploring those emotions which brings them to a state where they are not fully in control and yet they have to be so precise and rigorous
3: it is a bit timed and it's intuitively i do that i cannot say um, a rational thing about that it's i I feel it i i see ah they're going there but uh, it's not enough they're not going deep enough how do i get them there and then sometimes i throw away the form fast just and I say, just go to a climax. I don't care how use the material, use the speed you need, use whatever. If you have to shout, shout, get there. And then a lot of times they get there, but then it becomes over. But then they went to that point, and then I can pull them back again into more the clean form. And then to find the balance between this overpowering emotion and the form it's it also goes in etaps and sometimes i go back and then forth and um, it's uh, but it's it, an intuition what they need at which moment
0: this tension between two extremes seems to be very much at yes. the core of yeah. what you like to explore uh, it's, I, it it's not what
3: i like it's just uh, i'm like how that. you work. I, how for you me are. life is like that also okay. it's um, i cannot do anything else <laughs> It's as simple as that. Yeah.
0: And for the dancers that you work with, how do they feel about always being pulled like that, and always having to embrace two different sides, which for you come natural, but might not come natural for them?
3: Yeah, that's the choice of the dancers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I made a wrong decision um, with choosing a person, but most of the time, the people working with me are also in a way functioning like that so it's fitting how different personalities that they are or body types it are also people have this mm-hmm. double and it cannot be as extreme as me maybe but or they really want to explore because they feel like with this I can go deep in my life they they don't want just yeah to, to dance and, and function and or they have the same issue um, so that's it's the choice of with who you work together that's why also sometimes in in auditions I can see the most great answers but from the moment I have the feeling like they're treating it as their good profession I need to feel the necessity to do that it's my necessity and I want to work with people who feel this necessity and there are different levels not everybody has to so it's first of all that and then Further on, don't forget it can sound extreme, but don't forget we are in a safe space normally if we work together. So you feel also things. If I feel, or they also feel it from me, I'm more vulnerable that day, or I'm more. You you feel and you work with each other, you know, there is not a a law, like, and now I want you to go far, whatever. It's it's really in a human way, like you grow together. so, also, for some dancers uh, with certain issues, it took me together with them some years to get to this very sensitive part. It takes years sometimes that 's why most of the time, I work with the same people otherwise it 's too you cannot get to know somebody and all their deep issues in one production it 's uh, and for them also me and my style it 's uh, and it's hard because most of the time, freelance choreographers and freelance dancers, you know, it's like, I call it uh, job hopping. You know, it's uh, its nothing for me. its uh, And that's also, for a moment, I feel that I'm like, you're great, but this is not going to work.
2: <laughs> so. There's a clear benefit to working long term, but what about... The sustainability of these performances as you're saying for Cecilia and Judith who've been there the entire time, 120 performances, seven years later, how... And also of the other pieces,
3: huh? there are more pieces. Right. Yeah. And we're touring, mm, a lot of times we are touring different pieces at the same time. So they are jumping from isolation, pain and sorrow into desire and it's like... Yeah. <laughs> but,
2: Is there another sort of way of taking care of themselves? Like, you, you know, you eat well, you sleep well, to, to be active but to be that emotionally sensitive each night on stage. How do they prepare for that? How do you prepare them for that? By now,
3: I don't prepare them anymore. They do it themselves. They know what they need. They know what kind of concentration they need before a performance. Uh, we, we see if there's a, a lot of time in between certain performance dates with uh, one uh, peculiar piece. We make sure that we always do a run two days before, one day before, that they get back into this world. And they're busy with it in their own, in their own lives, even if they have to do other things. Uh, they're busy with it mentally. What is very important, that is visualizing, and visualizing your body in the piece, and visualizing your emotion. It's work that happens at night, in the evening, in the morning, when you go to the toilet. It's, it's different moments. You don't really have to physically rehearse. Uh, I really believe in this whole visual, visualization uh, and concentration. But by the time it's the performance, most of the time they're quiet, they're very focused, and it's really building from being blanco, building step-by-step step on in the performance. And like, for example, with I Solo Mint, uh, Cecilia had to start crying, so the poem just like that, bam, <laughs> and doing a kind of washing, but like with distance. so. In the whole, with the man and the woman, it's like they they are in another time. They don't see each other, and she, she does the washing of somebody dying. You know, like a person who is, uh, and um, she had to start crying like that. And for that, she herself, I I told her, I said, I want you to start crying. And we tried in the beginning with those fake tears and things like that, but we didn't. She didn't feel comfortable with it, me neither, and and. I didn't force force her into anything. Herself, she said, yeah, I know, I know. I have to really cry. I have to go in myself. So she's 15 minutes before the performance, isolated, going through things, uh, hitting herself, uh, going through her own memories and emotions. And to be able to be in the emotional state, she has to be. But you have to want to do that. If you're, there are people who say, oh God, not me. You, but that's what I mean. Happiness doesn't come in one piece. You need, there is non-happiness to be able to feel happiness. Mm -hmm. And that's important.
2: Relativity. Yeah.
3: Yeah
1: so thank you very much for being with us um, and for those who are interested for Côte de Lette, um, it's the 19th 20th and 21st of November at 8pm at Eusense and the length of the piece is 60 minutes uh, this is also a work that won the Swan Award for the best production and yeah thank you once again and uh, have fun! <laughs> <laughs> thank
3: you, <laughs> thank you.
1: And you have a piece of music to share with us
2: that we can uh, play to represent the the show.
3: Yes, it's uh, the the music of uh, the performance cotolet and the composer is Arne van Dongen.
0: Next with us, we have Sarah Bild, who is presenting a work as part of the program Tracé Choregraphic with um, Dansité, and it will be presented on from November 20th to November 23rd at 8 p.m. at the Théâtre Rouge Conservatoire on Henri Julien. Last time we saw Sarah Bild was at Tangente in collaboration with Susanna Hood. So she's coming to present this time as the choreographer in collaboration with her t- uh, three dancers, Sarah Henley, Alexandre Parenteau, and Isabelle Poirier. And the pl- the piece is called Plus Vrai. So hi, Sarah, how are you doing today? Very well, thanks. Good. Uh, so first of all, for the audience members, our listeners who might not know you, could you tell us a bit about your background, where you studied, mm-hmm. uh, what brought you into choreography, okay. just a general overview?
4: I'm a Montreal choreographer. I've been living here for almost 30 years. I trained at LADME, when it was still LADME, before it became uh, l'école de danse contemporaine. I was in the second year of its uh, training program. So I've known that school a long time. I teach there. It was really the basis of my training as an artist, I would say. They made me me an artist. And uh, I continued to create, uh, kind of always independently, hiring dancers as I needed them. Um, I founded a company, Build Dance, in 96 uh, when I went to Romania to work with a company there and I decided to come back and continue that creation with the Prague Trilogy. I've been interested in dance as basically anything that involves the human body on stage. So those boundaries between dance and theater and performance are not that important to me. I think as long as you're using your human body, you're... You're dancing, really. I like the idea of really opening up uh, the concept of dance. I re- More recently, I've been uh, really deepening uh, an improvisational practice, which is called action theater. I met Ruth Zapora who founded the technique in to- 2003. And uh, since then, I've trained to become a teacher in the technique. And it has really informed my dance process by liberating the voice uh, as vocalization and also as the in the use of words, and so that has permeated my my work as well and how I direct dancers
0: and for this uh, this new piece uh, it 's part of tres choregraphe with uh, dansité how did this come about? Was it a project that they approached you with or did you contact them saying, I have this new project that I'm interested in presenting?
4: A bit of each. I think Danielle and I were were due to, he he had presented me before in 2001 and uh, I had slowed down a bit because I had some children in there (laughs) since then. But um, I think he was interested, I had, Created a trio in 2011 called the Kiefer Trio, and it was based on some research I was doing into my family history, and more particularly my father's history uh, during the Second World War and the Holocaust. And I thought I wanted to push that research with a trio. I mean, it, it seemed to be the kind of story of my family with three sisters and and it it was really delving very almost very literally into that history and um, I had just kind of built an in, initial sketch, what I call the sketch, which was twenty minutes long of this trio I danced in it and i wanted I thought I wanted to revisit that material and create a longer. A longer full evening work and a lot of things happened in my personal life it took me two years to get back to this work now and um, I realized that I didn't want to look into the past anymore and I felt that I had not that I'd kind of conquered that or done it but I knew it was in me and I wanted to look more towards the future and the future of dance for me I think is if not more abstract it's um, Something about opening myself very much to, to what presents itself to me rather than going to seek something specific. I'm really in a nouveau questionnement, a bit of a midlife crisis, I guess, but in a really positive way. I'm just very opening to working differently. So I didn't want to come in with a preconception.
0: And do you feel that your experience with action theater has really brought you to this point of wanting to let things come to you and evolve naturally rather than forcing something?
4: Absolutely. I think that's the improvisational spirit is very much, you know, we I think we're all as artists seeking truth in some way. And sometimes the the truest thing you do is that first thing you do. And it's, uh, and I'm not saying that everything needs to be improvised, because as a choreographer, I adore really designing things and really choosing things and really perfecting things. So there's a lovely balance in that. But I wanted to be able to train my dancers to be in the moment and in the sensation Of what we call the moment to moment experience, because this is a live art form. And uh, there's something very special about creating live, you know, your your present moment with the audience. And that's why we all love hearing live music, for example, more than just a recording. It's a different experience. Those musicians are sharing their present with you. And the same with dance. And I think, um, as I get older, I think I'm much more interested in that.
2: I would appreciate it if you could expand a bit
4: on action theater and, and the methodology behind that.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: I'd be glad to. Um, it, was a bi- it was a bit of a head-turner, for, like a kind of a mind shift for me. It came at just the right time in my life when I was questioning a lot about performance. And it gave me the tools. Um, well, maybe just start at the beginning. A lot of people think that to practice improvisation seems to be contradictory, but it's not. Improvising, yes, is being open to the moment and being ready to do anything but we need tools of practice for that and things like knowing space, knowing composition making good rhythmical or tempo um, choices and content choices and not repeating yourself knowing when to pause things like phrasing all those things can be practiced musicians know this improvisational musicians absolutely know that you need a technique to improvise and dancers do too and any movers. And so this amazing practice founded by Ruth Zipporah is very rigorous, it's uh, demanding, and it opens up this notion of everything starts with the body and in sensation, and based on that sensational sensation experience or sensory experience, you can come to voice and you can come to words. And it what it helped me is become a much more three-dimensional performer. As dancers, I think we are often taught to look good and to create good lines, and yes we're technical we're we're technical experts, but we're not always called upon to be whole beings I find i mean that's my opinion, and I think that to liberate the voice is a really important thing for dancers to do it's something about claiming themselves as Whole beings and uh, whole participants in an artistic process, and I know that action theater has helped me do that, and I hope uh, i 've started to teach it and i I am really passionate about bringing this to the dance community because I think it uh, it's very, very rich
0: as a teacher of action theater, how like you know you 've been in this process for a while now, but you 're also seeing new people who are starting to embrace this process. How do you feel it 's being received like do you feel that it, it's really taking some people out of their com- comfort zone, or are people just feeling more liberated through it? Like, how do you it's see? It's an it?
4: interesting question. I think a bit of both. I mean, I think like any technique, you know, it either works for you, it doesn't. So, but what's wonderful about action theater is you can really work it at the level that you're at. I mean, there there's some total non-movers who come to the technique. Poets, writers love it because it uh, engages their imagination. You kind of work it the way you can, but you still try to stay with sensory experience. Yes, there's some people very uncomfortable with voice, and they just can't get it. But they are challenged, and they're interested in opening that possibility up. I was just teaching at UQAM last week, and there's some people very honest. Yep, voice is a real handicap for me. It's a real, you know. And... uh, but it's like anything, you need to practice it. I mean, I, I used to complain to my teacher because words used to really stump me. And she said, yeah, okay, you've got the, the moving thing down. Of course, you've got to practice the words. I mean, pr- nothing comes easily, so you've got to practice it. And um, yes, I think it can take you out of your comfort zone. I think it prides, I pride myself on trying to teach to people strengths. And I think that's a really important thing about the process. And like any improv practice, you know you know what you do well, and sometimes we tend to go into those habits. And then we get tired of them, and we want to learn to do something else. And I think that's what's really great about action theatre, is it can really open up your range.
2: Are there guidelines involved on how to access your voice to, to even oh, begin? Absolutely. Okay.
4: Absolutely. There's a lot of it's tapping into the breath and it's about sometimes matching movement, you know, you become we call talk about sounder mover so you're the only, you're your sounder to your own movement. It all can be very abstract and then it can be very concrete. We work things like isolating uh speech from gesture so that you only speak when you don't move, I mean, you can't see it on the radio, but <laughs> anyway, there's some wonderful exercise. It's all very playful. It's really fun. For
1: those listening and maybe interested, because um, I'm definitely interested and it's something I'm starting to work on, is is using the voice a mm. lot more. Um, where can we get this kind of training and, and where could we follow one of your classes?
4: Well... I'm really proud to say I'm going to start a a regular class at La Poile in in January. Mm -hmm. I'm going to probably start with a weekend intensive and then continue with a a weekly class.
0: So we've talked about it as a developmental tool for dancers, but it is also something that you use as part of your choreography. Mm -hmm. And as a choreographic tool, how do you approach it differently from when you give classes? How do you use it? to make those choices as a choreographer that you're talking about, but while embracing this openness also.
4: That's interesting. I think one of the key things I use in directing my dancers is I talk about specificity of movement. So something that we we do in action theater that is really helpful is... To, to break our habits justement is to think about when you're when you're moving in some kind of fluid fashion, it's like, okay, well what's grabbing my interest here? Oh my wrists all of a sudden are really interesting to me. And so we go into the wrists and we bring our attention to a specific part of the body, rather than always moving in some kind of generalized fashion. And we'll move our attention from different parts of our body to become specific, to make specific choices. And there's something very useful in creating movement that way, but also in directing dancers, to be specific. Because dancers get so good, I mean that's what's so great about dancers, and I respect so much, is we become really perfected in doing things, and then it almost becomes second nature and we don't think about it. And to put your attention somewhere draws the attention of the audience to that place, and it can make things look really particular and interesting. And the other thing that's really great is for a dancer to stay really fascinated with what they do, with what they're doing. And sometimes when they become really good, it becomes kind of routine, and they're not that fascinated with it. And I really believe as a performer, if you stay, fa- stay fascinated with what you're doing, the audience will be too. So that's one of the ways in how I direct my dancers. I would say maybe there's a more dramatic element, too, that I've started bringing into my choreographic work, uh, kind of more expressive, expressionistic, and that comes from improvising that way. You know, we allow for shouting, we allow for whispering, we allow for all that kind of nuance. Are
1: there moments in the performance that's coming up at uh, Théâtre Rouge, uh, plus vrai, are there moments that they're... Uh, is space for improvisation, or because I know that there's a balance of you really enjoying using improvisation as a tool and also using it as a as a performance method, um, but also being very particular in detail and in as a choreographer. So that, where do you find that balance? And
4: so that yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm actually also doing a solo, and that's a structured improv, very structured improv. But I will be improvising in some of that. Um, but in the trio, I devised. A very, yes, very clear structure. And inside that, I've asked the the dancers to do what we call implosion and explosion of the dance phrase. And so at any moment, we we always know where they're going to be when, and that's an agreement. But inside that, they can interpret how they might want to stretch the movement or compress it bring it really far inward, and when do they really want to play with it and expand it. And we use that in how we built the piece as well. So I think they would say, yes, they have quite a bit of room to move.
2: This sounds so expansive, both your concept and the way that you're working the choreography. How does it stay cohesive, or is it cohesive?
4: I think that's where the structure pulls it all together. it's so interesting you say that because during the process when we were really blowing it wide open, we would do a half an hour of the piece the way it was, and then I would let them do a whole half hour of revisiting the first version, but living it their own in their own space, in their own field, like as I say, super imploded, minimalist, or super exploded, and it was amazing what happened. Some of the rencontres were really different. Some of the timing was different, but there was a kind of a there was a coherence to it. But now, slow. So, so we have all that baggage and that uh, experience, and now we've brought it into the theater, and it's. It, I would say it's very set. I don't want to suggest that it's wide open, but I think the dancers. It would be great to ask them, but I think they feel they've got room.
0: Talking about the dancers, you have some pretty fantastic uh, Mm -hmm. performers uh, collaborating with you here. You have Sarah Hanley, Alexandre Parenteau, Isabelle Poirier. Um, And one thing that I would use to describe all three performers is that they they have a lot of sensibility, sensitivity when they they perform. Um, Is that part of why you went to choose them?
4: Absolutely. Interestingly, I know them at all three different levels. Isabelle is a a kind of contemporary of mine. We went to school almost at the same time. I adore her maturity, and we've worked together before. Sarah Hanley I know a bit less, but I was her teacher at LADME, and uh, I I just uh, adore her presence. Uh, She's so, so uh, engaged on stage. This is a first uh, working uh, relationship with Alex and I chose him, yes, for his clarity of being and his uh, physical clarity. And he's also a, just amazing mover and a great problem solver. He's a good partner. He's a good lifter, uh, all those great things. It's been a really wonderful experience to get them to stay in that sensory place. And not to go into... there Because they're such professionals. They can really turn on the flash if they want to, but I'm not into flash. So it's always about just staying really true and really in the moment. And that's been really great.
0: One of the things that is interesting about your approach to voice is that uh, whereas we often see it as this almost theatrical tool, uh, your approach to voice is a bit different. It's not so much about reading a text that will create this narrative or that will point to what you're trying to say with the piece, but your approach to voice is a bit different than that. Could you explain to us a bit how you approach the use of voice Mm -hmm. and of words that might not exactly fit in the more theatrical approaches we see nowadays?
4: Yeah. Well, again, because I think I'm using voice as a physical action. It's, it's about how it comes and informs your physical pres- presence. And so, for example, there are some tableaus where two dancers are just whispering to each other. And it's just a lovely accompaniment in a way. What it does is it creates this intimacy in them and an intimacy between them. The audience doesn't necessarily need to know what they're whispering about, but there's something about the listening and the sound and how it supports them and how they play off each other rhythmically that creates a whole world. And it's very, um, it's tender, and it's and it allows us to kind of read what we want onto it rather than actually need to understand the meaning of anything. And then, uh, quite uh, in contrast, there's a scene where they all three dancers are moving and working their way up to full-on rants. And again, those rants, I've left, left them wide open. Some of them are more comfortable with that than others, but... Wide open. I don't care what you rant about. It's just got to become a rant. And again, doesn't matter what the content is. But we feel the surge of anger. We can all uh, identify. And again, it doesn't matter about meaning. You know, the, the, this is what I find is interesting. Is I think, kind of like you know, you get a lot from watching some maybe a film without subtitles. <laughs> if you don't understand the language, you can pick up a lot from voice. And it's a universal how human beings use their voices and. So I use it almost more mus- musically in some ways.
2: So then how does the voice of your performers interact with, uh, with your composers'
4: work? Mm. That's really interesting. We worked very hand-in-hand, hand and Martin created these kind of, uh, it's Martin Tetreault who did the, the original composition. He created what we call these well, kind of soundscapes that come, some, sometimes come in and really fill the space and then can recede almost like a hum, something that kind of holds the space. But um, the dancers' voices modulate inside that. It's a it's a very close relationship between the music and the the voices.
2: Is it set, the music, or does he interact with them? No, no, it's set. Okay.
4: Yeah, it's already made.
1: Looking at the postcard here, there's a very strong visual and also the teaser for, for the mm-hmm. piece as well. Um, you're working with the scenograph uh, and maybe... The visual is this. Is this a part of what we're kind of going into? Very earthy, and I think there are themes here that are are kind of reflecting of this going, just being human, right? And, Absolutely. And, uh, very earthy. So maybe t- talk about that. How present is the work of uh, Lars
4: in and all very. Of this? Very. Um, we've he's created um, quite a wonderful lamp type sculpture. It came from. My initial idea that I had, it was about this proximity to the dancers and a kind of an intimacy, and I wanted to create these kind of salons. And so I wanted to bring a wall closer to the audience so the dancers wouldn't be so far. So we created a wall at about 20, 20 feet from the audience, and then the rest of the stage goes right back 40 feet. And in front of this wall, in order to kind of create this hearth-like setting, but again, it's quite imaginary, uh, Lars created this amazing lamp uh, made of found objects and rusted metal. and, And the lamp represents home in a weird way, a hearth, kind of. And yes, there is a dead plant and there's also a live plant and whatever symbolic that brings in. But there's something always for me about what human nature is and the nature of being human. And interestingly, Lars, who lives up at Montremblant and works in the forest, and he sees the piece very much as about a pull between the urban and nature and how we live as kind of sophisticated or somehow culturalized humans. So I think all those things run through the piece, you know, without necessarily being about that, mm-hmm. it's just present. And this is an image that really happened by chance in, in one of the improvised sections where w- one of the dancers put the pod on top of Alex's feet, and it just struck me. And you know when you don't know what an image means, but it just it has strength? Yeah, I quite love it.
0: And so we've been talking about the performance of your dancers, but you also mentioned that you'll be doing a solo. Yes. Is the solo part of plus or is it something that is... Uh, complimentary to to the piece?
4: I think it's quite complementary. It's not part of it. But because I um, I work very intuitively and uh, my my new solo diptyque is very much in the same world that's been created within the same six months. My being is still involved in plus vrai. And yes, I think there's my ap- approach to space and time that's involved. Uh, Daniel uh, from Densité, Daniel Soulière, suggests that there's something about me presenting myself as the creator first and then kind of then the trio is presented that I'm almost giving uh, am I giving some cues or tips as to how to read my work I'm not sure but there's very much there, there's something about the the lonely artist or the lonely composer in his garret about my solo and I think there is I hope I hope I'm gonna I hope it'll help to maybe understand what's coming.
0: Was this solo created before, after? After. Okay. Yeah. And did you have in mind all of the themes that you explored for Plus Vrai? Or was it something that you had something new in mind and it evolved and it just ended up being placed? Yes. With that? Okay.
4: But I think, as I say, because Plus Vrai is in my bones right now, mm-hmm. it, it's in my the, the solo as well.
0: And it's the first time that you're doing a solo since... Uh, it's the first time you're doing a solo dance in a for long a while. Time. Yeah. How how are you approaching that? How does it feel to go back on stage by yourself, present something of yours but dancing in it?
4: It's um it's really interesting. It feels I've always said this, but I feel it more than ever that I think uh, being choreographer dancer for a solo is almost like a whole other art form. It's so different than being a choreographer outside your work. And as I say, it's that designer in me that is the choreographer where I really get to choose and, and, and perfect that you don't get to do from the inside as a dancer performer. And um, there's much more left to chance. There's much more left to instinct. Uh, it feels more raw, like I'm really just sharing my my kind of state of mind and my present moment with the uh, the audience. So in some ways it feels less refined, but maybe... I hope, closer to truth in some way. I think it's a gift I'm giving myself. It's a sense of permission that I'm going to uh, dance this solo. Yeah, I don't know. I'm very excited about it.
1: We've been talking with Sarah Bild, who is presenting Plus a uh, part of Trace Choregraph, um, between the 20th and 23rd of November at uh, 8 o'clock. And the theatre is Théâtre Rouge du Conservatoire en, en Julien. Um So thank you so much for talking about your work.
4: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
2: And you're going to let us uh, listen to a little piece of this this track from your show. Can yes. you introduce
4: us to what we're going to be listening to? Yes, it's a, it's a part that we called Hésitation, and it's created by Martin Tetro. beautiful collaboration that I've experienced with him. Um, he's working from his own sounds, as well as a kind of a deconstructed uh, piece of Beethoven's, a, a string quintet. So there's some elements from that that are entwined in his own work.
0: Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theater. Check them out at montrealimprov.com.
2: Dirty Feet est produit et animé par... Produced and hosted by... Alison Burns...
0: J.D. Papion
2: Et Stéphanie Robert. You can find out more about our show at nomoreradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at DirtyDirtyFeet. And find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet
1: Podcast. Vous pouvez écouter tous nos épisodes sur notre site web ou... Vous vous sur iTunes notre podcast.
0: Listen to past episodes on website or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.
1: While you're there, be sure to give us a rating and or leave a comment to help us spread the word. Tune in next week for a whole new show.